You know, it seems just about the time that you think you have exhausted all that there is to know about the Great Pyramids and the Plains of Giza, the Sphinx, the Temple of Leo there. Just about the time you think you've read all, seen all, something pops up that throws everything out of order. That's exactly what we're going to be talking about today on The Soul Trap, The Great Pyramid. My name is Joel Tillis. Thanks for tuning in. We trust that wherever, whenever this broadcast finds you, finds you in good health, good spirits, and most of all, on that good and narrow way. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to tune into The Soul Trap, and we trust that you enjoy being on this strange and wonderful journey with us. I was reading just the other day, and I came across an interesting article. Uh, it was written, and the title caught my attention, Mystery of 24 Alien Black Boxes Discovered Near Egypt's Pyramid of Giza. Now, the title is a little bit misleading because we have no way of knowing whether they're alien or, alien or not. And I guess it also depends on what your definition of alien is. But they were boxes that were found. They weigh more than 100 tons. They're solid Aswan granite. Uh, they are precision engineered to a tolerance which would be deemed remarkable even by today's standards. So the question that the article begs is, how did Egyptians build and put in place 24 strange, quite frankly sinister looking black boxes that almost resemble giant coffins? Giant coffins. Giant. Discovered buried in a hillside cave about 12 miles south of the Great Pyramid of Giza. And more importantly, the question, I guess, would be is, why were they made? Not just how, but why. Because you can do something uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you would do it. The skillfulness of the stone cutting, the article goes on to say, is accurate to just a few microns. And it is so remar remarkable that some experts have concluded that they were not built for Egyptian pharaohs, but in fact left on Earth by an alien race, and simply appropriated by the kings. The stark black boxes do display some hieroglyphics, but they are of such poor quality that it is believed that it's simply graffiti left after the fact. The real purpose and function of the boxes remain unclear, but they were of real clear importance as they were cut with such precision that they would actually remain airtight for a millennia. Now, that's fascinating to me. They weren't sealed with a seal or an epoxy or anything like that, the stone, the granite, was cut with such precision that once covered, the coffers were airtight. They are known as the Serapium of Sagara in the abandoned city of Memphis, Egypt. In Egyptology, a Serapium is a temple or other religious institution dedicated to the synerg uh, syncretic Greco-Egyptian deity Serapis, who combined aspects of Osiris and Apis in a humanized form. The formal burial site is believed to have been built some 3,000 plus years ago by Ramses II. Recent research actually suggests it was a burial place of the Apis bulls, which were worshipped as incarnation of the god Ta, which is interesting when you look at Psalms chapter number 22, what Jesus seem to be describing around the cross, but I digress. Egyptologists say that because the bulls were honored as gods, the son of Ramses II ordered that a 
tunnel be excavated through one of the mountains at the side and designed with a side chamber to contain large granite sarcophagi weighing up to 100 tons each to hold the mummified remains of bulls. There you have it. The explanation then is um, tombs for bulls. Like I said at the beginning of the show, just about the time you think you've heard it all or seen it all, something else comes up. And the fact of the matter is, for every little bit that we know, it begs the question, how much has taken place there that we do not actually know? I think as we come back full circle, and you know we, we get caught up, and I do believe in dispensationalism, but we get caught up in our dispensational straight lines. But to read the Bible, actually, as in the days of Noah, so shall also be the coming of the Son of Man. It is a little bit more circular. And as we come back you know, full circle to the return of the Lord, as we leave this dispensation that is strictly by faith in the re- revealed word and not by sight, it begs the question that we will be entering into, or not I, but those that are left behind will be entering into a dispensation that is faith, but not just faith, there will be signs. Joel speaks of that. Luke speaks of that. In fact, the Bible actually speaks about Revelation, an angel flying through the midst of the air. So there are some strange things, I believe, that are going to be cropping up the closer we get to the coming of the Lord. How much is revealed, I don't know, in this dispensation. But I do believe there is going to be some very strange and unusual things that take place. And speaking of strange and unusual, probably one of the strangest connections between the Great Pyramid and the mysteries of the Giza Plain uh, and our present day stance as Bible believers is the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter number 19, the Bible says in verse 19, In that day there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And what's interesting is Egypt is the only land in the world where you could put something in the midst and at the border. And the reason is because it's really the only country in the world that has its upper and lower reversed. Upper Egypt is lower and lower Egypt is upper. And there is an exact uh, border in the midst of Egypt, which coincidentally is exactly where the Great Pyramid appears to be. In that day, the Bible says, there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. That's pretty fascinating, isn't it? Not the savior, not the great one, but a savior, a great one. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it, and the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal it, and they shall return even to the Lord, and he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. Very, very peculiar language for a Gentile nation, isn't it? That's the kind of language that you would hear spoken of by Maybe the Lord to the children of Israel, but very peculiar for a Gentile nation. Verse 23 states, In that day there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt. The third? Hmm. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, 
and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel mine inheritance. I don't know that anyone, Ruckman included, anyone else has been able to accurately exegete what that means. Blessed be Egypt, my people. There is something strange and peculiar and even absolutely iconic worldwide about the Great Pyramid. From Masonic lore to New World Order power to Beyonce wearing her clothes and and her and Jay-Z making the sign, quite frankly, to other cultures that have no real deep familiarity with the actual pyramid, yet there is an iconic and global recognition of the pyramid. I think it's worthwhile to actually posit the idea that, that possibly that pyramid, that vision, that idea, harkens back to something deep within mankind. I do. I think that there's something that reaches back into the, into the caverns of man's antiquitous consciousness that reminds them of something, maybe something that has been veiled. But I, I think there's more than just the wonder and the awe. There is a mystery about the pyramid. In studying the pyramid, I have come across probably one of the best books called The Stargate Conspiracy. It's a book written by Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince. Very, very interesting book. Uh, The back cover says, In recent years, alternative histories have gained remarkable insight in the mysteries of ancient Egypt. Their work has helped, speaking of the authors, their work has helped us to better understand Egyptian culture. But in the Stargate conspiracy, Lynn Pickett and Clive Prince argue that their revolutionary discoveries tie in to a dangerous conspiracy nearly 50 years in the making. Now, I don't want to read the entire book for you, and I don't want to give away the dangerous mystery. I would suggest at your own time, at your own leisure, not to say that I agree with everything in the book, but as I was reading, I came across a portion of it that I think is very fascinating for our discussion about the pyramid, and I want to read a section to you um, and I think you'll, you'll get, as we read, I think you'll get really the gist of, of the profundity, the profundity, I should say, of the Great Pyramid. The authors write in the book, The Stargate Conspiracy, No first visit to Paris is complete without a trip to the top of the Eiffel Tower, where, wind-blown but triumphant, one can enjoy a seemingly limitless view over one of the most beautiful cities on Earth. This experience is useful when putting another even more famous landmark into context, the Great Pyramid of Giza. Until the Eiffel Tower was built in the last years of the 19th century, the ancient Egyptian wonder of the world was the tallest building humanity had ever known. Now that's, that's fascinating. Even if you want to say it was built in 3000 BC, which it was not, But that's still almost 6,000 years before anybody built something as grand and as big as that. It almost sort of shoots the whole idea of evolution in the foot, doesn't it? That we've been nothing and then achieved, 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 achieved and gone up. It sure seems like we were up, went down, and now we're going back up. That bears more to the Bible. The author goes on to say, But while every nut and bolt of the iron giant of Paris can be traced 
to its origin and all its parts could be easily reassembled today, the same is not true of the Great Pyramid. No one knows how it was built, although many claim they do. While everyone knows the reason why the Alpha Tower was built, no one knows the true purpose of the Pyramid. The Great Pyramid is profoundly unsettling in many ways, not least because of its sheer scale. It is made of 2.5 million limestone blocks, each with an average weight of 2.5 tons. This immense structure covers an area of over 53,000 square yards at its base, with a perimeter of over half a mile. It is 481 feet high, a great height as those who ill-advisedly and illegally climb up it can truly testify. Although its roughly stepped sides now appear to invite an arduous scramble to the summit, originally this was impossible as the whole pyramid was covered in a smooth, polished limestone covering. The Great Pyramid, the writer states, let me turn the page here, the Great Pyramid is aligned to the cardinal points of the compass with an amazing and aesthetically unnecessary degree of accuracy. There is only an error of about five inches in the north-south alignment and one of just over two inches from the east-west. I think that's a very fascinating statement. It is, it is aligned with an aesthetically unnecessary degree of accuracy. When we think about the Great Pyramid, if you can get the size context in your mind, you, you have to ask the question, why? What was it symbolizing? What was it trying to accomplish? And then once you ask the size and the scope, then you have to ask the technical question. So for instance, you go, well, I understand why the Eiffel Tower was built. We build it because we can, a symbol of our power, a symbol of our glory, yada, yada, yada. I get that. But do you understand the painstaking? It would almost be as mentally and, and quite frankly, geographically as painstakingly difficult to align the Eiffel Tower with the north-south axis and the east-west axis as it would be simply to build it straight up. It's one thing to build a thing. It's another thing to align it mathematically, ge ge geographically, and celestially. Why would they do that? Now, the writer goes on to write, the same incredible accuracy applies to the monument as a whole. The length of the sides at its base differ by less than 8 inches between the shortest and longest sides, and the accuracy of the right-angle corners is near perfect. There are other famous examples of awesome sophistication in the construction and location of the Great Pyramid. These include the fact that it is situated almost exactly on the geo, uh, uh, let me see here, geographical significant latitude of 30 degrees. Let me read that line again. It is situated almost exactly on the geographical significant latitude of 30 degrees, as well as the use in its design of advanced geometric concepts, such as pi and phi, which are officially supposed to have been unknown to the ancient Egyptians. For orthodox Egyptologists, these facts, while undeniable, can only be put down at best as coincidence. Elsewhere... In the Giza complex, other less famous examples of the builder's art equally give one pause. Most tourists only ever use the curious now roofless building known as the Valley of the Temple, which lies on the southern side of the Sphinx enclosure as a route to the Sphinx. This is a pity, as it is well worth serious examination itself. 
Limestone blocks dwarf even those used in the construction of the Great Pyramid, some weighing as much as 200 tons and measuring up to 9 meters in length. These blocks were taken from the Sphinx enclosure when it was originally hollowed out. The inner walls and upright square pillars of the interior of the temple are made of granite, again, some weighing over 200 tons. But it is important to remember that it was not until the 1970s when cranes were built that could lift a weight of even just 100 tons, half the weight of the largest blocks in the valley of the temple. How did the ancient Egyptians lift them over three millennia ago? There is something other than sheer scale involved in the workmanship of the valley of the temple. There are, by modern standards, other virtually impossible flourishes in the setting of one stone next to another. For example, at its corners, instead of having two separate stones fitted together to form the right angles, just one massive massive block has been cut to turn the corner, sometimes by the ludicrously tiny amount of just a couple of inches, with the next stone specifically trimmed to fit the remaining space, and so on. This is all the more incredible when you realize that the stones were all cut to fit when actually in place. It follows the same principle as that of dry stone walling used by many rural people today. But how were the Egyptians able to manipulate such massive stones? And why did they choose what has to be the most complicated and unnecessarily difficult method they could possibly find? As we toured the valley of the temple, The thought that came irresistibly to mind was that these builders were showing off. The granite blocks themselves present another mystery. Not only is the interior of the valley temple made of granite, but so is part of the inside of the Great Pyramid. The king's chamber is lined with it. The local stone was limestone, so the giant granite blocks had to be transferred from Aswan about six hundred miles to the south of Cairo, then hoisted into place, sometimes being positioned as lintels across the top of upright granite blocks. There are other examples of unnecessary, even apparently absurd, difficulties encountered by the early builders. At the position of Khafra's, the second pyramid, a level base had to be created on a slightly sloping section of the plateau. In other words, they built this, what the author's talking about here is that they built this second pyramid, what's called Kafka's Pyramid, Kafra's Pyramid, on the plain there, the plateau of Giza, on a slightly sloping section. Now, let me pick up and finish reading here this section. This entailed the cutting of a step into the rock of the rise and building up the lower part of the slope with limestone blocks to make a level platform. Had the pyramid been built just a few hundred meters to the west, it would have been on level ground to begin with. So instead of just looking at the ground, surveying the ground and saying, you know what, instead of here, why don't we move it just a hundred meters here and we'll be fine. They intentionally built it where they did, intentionally knowing it was going to cause all that extra work. The book goes on and says, Had the pyramid been built just a few hundred meters to the west, it would have been on level ground to begin with. Clearly, the ancient Egyptians either liked to make things as difficult as possible for themselves, 
or there was a very important reason why the second pyramid should occupy exactly that position in relation to the first. The mysteries of the external structure of the Giza monuments leap to the visitor's startled eye, but the inside of the Great Pyramid is even more baffling. What strikes the first-time visitor immediately is how strangely cramped the passages and entrances to the chambers are, and how difficult it is for even relatively small adults to scrape through. You have to duck down for long stretches of the ascending passage to reach the awe-inspiring Grand Gallery, which leads to the King's Chamber, and then you must bend double to get through the immediate entrance, what's called the Antechamber, and before wooden slats were incorporated into the Grand Gallery in the modern era to enable visitors to achieve a foothold, originally there was only a massive smooth stone surface stretching upwards and out of sight. The Great Pyramid is hardly visitor-friendly. The gods alone know what kind of superhuman agility was required to move around inside it a millennia ago, much less do construction work. We are told that the Great Pyramid, like its companions at Giza and every other Egyptian pyramid, was built as a tomb for a pharaoh. And this is, according to mainstream Egyptologists, a fact. Unfortunately, all the pyramids, all the pyramid idiots, as they like to call them, gleefully point out no evidence of any human burial has ever been found in any pyramid. Not one. Most famously, no signs of human burial have ever been found in the Great Pyramid, nor in its two companion pyramids at Giza. Remains were found in the sarcophagus in Khafra's, the second pyramid, but they turned out to belong to a bull. Hmm. The old idea that pharaohs used thousands of slaves to haul the vast slabs of rock through the desert or on waterways, and maneuver them, maneuver them into place through sheer brute force, has been shown to be, if not an outright inaccurate observation of the facts, at least extremely unlikely. Recent archaeological evidence has indicated that the workers were free men who willingly gave up some of their time to assist in building, and were housed in huge camps, the logistics of feeding and watering this army of volunteer workers must have been a nightmare, especially as they were technically at least free to leave if they wanted to. There is also the problem of how any number of even the strongest and most willing men could have maneuvered those massive stone slabs into place with such finesse. The Great Pyramid slopes inwards towards the apex at an angle of 52 degrees, and its summit is nearly 500 feet from the ground. The imagination balks at the problem of how these quote-unquote primitive people did it. They must have had some type of scaffolding that was not only extraordinarily strong, but also adjustable. After all, it would have to allow for the intricate and physically tough work needed to maneuver each mighty stone in place, course by course, higher and higher, all the while this intricate and maneuverable scaffolding would also have to be sloping inward to accommodate the gradient. Such scaffolding would also have to be almost supernaturally strong to sustain the weight of at least 2.5 ton blockage along with all the workers and tools. It absolutely boggles the mind 
If the largest single artifact, the book goes on to say, of ancient Egypt has the power to challenge our own sophisticated technology, spare a thought or two for some of the smallest. The Cairo Museum contains many of the sort of artifacts frequently overlooked by visitors, but they are almost in their own way as mysterious as the pyramids. For example, many small stone jars and bottles on closer examination prove to be extremely difficult to explain using mainstream academic arguments. We are asked to believe that the ancient Egyptians had only copper tools, Yet what we have here are tiny vessels, some just three inches high, made of incredibly hard material such as granite. These bottles and vases have elegant, thin-rimmed, perfectly round openings, narrow necks, and wider bodies, which have been hollowed out and shaped by a drill that entered through the neck, uh, through the narrow neck. But how? What diamond-tipped drill could create such extraordinary craftsmanship even now? But why go to such lengths just to make a vase in the first place? Other examples of precision drilling on the Giza Plateau are found right under the noses of the visitors and Egyptologists. In several places, fallen masonry has exposed perfectly round bore holes in granite pillars. Now, folks, you don't just put holes in granite. Now, I'm not a mason. I'm not a carpenter. I'm not a construction worker, but I know enough to know that you don't just reach over there and grab a hammer and a screwdriver and knock a couple holes in granite. In several places, fallen masonry have exposed perfectly round boreholes and granite pillars, sometimes up to 10 to 12 inches deep. And here's the kicker. They are perfectly round and precisely the same size all the way down. Archaeologists and Egyptologists vehemently deny that the ancient had tools such as lathes and drills on the apparently uh, uh, on the apparently reasonable grounds that no remains of any such tool has ever been found. Now, that may be unfortunate, but we have the evidence of our own eyes and also of that of an expert. The American tool designer and manufacturer Christopher Dunn, that may sound familiar to some of you tool guys, his analysis of certain old kingdom artifacts has convinced him that not only did the ancient Egyptians have drills, but that the drill holes in granite blocks could only have been achieved by a drill spinning 500 times faster than a modern diamond-tipped drill. Dunn has proposed that the Egyptians used an ultrasonic drill, which uses sound to make the bit vibrate at an enormously high rate. Andrew Collins, in his book, Gods of Eden, has developed the idea of sound technology used by the Egyptians and other ancient cultures, and it does seem likely that they used what Magi call the word sound to create many of the achievements that perplex us today. You know, when you look not just at the pyramid in Giza, but when you look around the world at the pyramid in China, the pyramid of the Incas, the Aztecs, when you look around at the ancient, and then you see that the first exposure, the first uh, intrusion of God into this reality, time, space, dimension was sound. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. John 1, 1, word, the word. Hebrews 1, the Bible says all things are upheld by the word of his power. 
at the most basic level now, string theory, at the most basic level of our existence in this dimension matrix, quantum physicists now are telling us that everything is vibrating. Very interesting, isn't it? Makes one wonder if they indeed did find something sound-based. The book goes on to say such theories go some way towards resolving the question of how the Egyptians were able to cut through the solid granite as if it were butter, achieving precision that would be extremely difficult, and in some cases literally impossible for us today, even with our computer-guided laser technology. But the question remains as to how they learned or developed their techniques. Clearly, since the pyramids and other enigmatic examples of their skill exist, they must have had such a technique even though bafflingly, no remnants of a drill or lathe have ever been found. So we have another quote-unquote impossible scenario, evidence of the results of this advanced technology, but no direct evidence of the technology itself. Now that's a profound statement to make. You've got the evidence staring you in the face. what What you don't have is the smoking gun, right? You walk in, there's the murder victim. Signs of the struggle. You've got all kinds of circumstantial evidence. What you don't have is the murder weapon. When it comes to advanced technology around the world, there from Easter Island to the Incas to Peru to the Great Pyramid, there is absolutely ample circumstantial evidence and beyond circumstantial evidence, factual, empirical evidence what we don't have is how the technology was was made. In other words, let me read that line again. We have another impossible scenario. Evidence of the results of this advanced technology, but no direct evidence of the technology itself. Therefore, say the academics, it's back to those primitive copper tools, despite the fact that no known copper tool could drill perfectly round holes in granite. The implication of this mystery take us into a whole new realm. What we appear to have in both the pyramids and the expertly drilled artifacts is evidence of a people who seem to have emerged from an essentially Neolithic Stone Age culture into an advanced, organized civilization capable of heroic building feats in at most just 500 years. As far as we can tell, the great monument simply came into being without any real process or development. Now remember that line. The great monuments came into process without any real came into being without any real process of development. Faced with this paradox, there seems to be only two ways to resolve it. One by denying that the ancient that the ancient Egyptians built the monuments, redating them so that they fit into a much earlier period and epoch, and assigning them to an otherwise lost civilization. Or by positing the intrusion into Egyptian society of some other, more advanced culture that came from elsewhere, and either taught the ancient Egyptians the necessary skills, or built the monuments themselves. Now that's the writer's two claims, but there may be a third way, and that is to incorporate both. That there is, yes, an earlier time, a pre-Diluvian time, and secondly, there was an intrusion, i.e. Genesis 6, the sons of God. I tend to think that when you look across the board, these are verifiable factual evidence of Genesis 6, what has been and what will be again. 
there's an interesting tie-in here with a whole other culture at a whole other location, and yet it brings it together. In the book, Pick, uh, Pignet and Prince write, One of the most influential books ever written about the mysteries of Egypt is Robert Temple's The Serious Mystery. Originally published in 1976 and with an extensively revised edition in 1998, as the inspiration for writers who wish to reconsider the ancient past, this book actually spawned much of the current new orthodoxy. Temple began by considering a puzzle posed by the Dogon people who live in West African country of Mali. The Dogon have an elaborate system of belief that centers on the importance of the star Sirius, which is, in galactic terms, a nearby neighbor. At 8.7 light years away, it is the second closest star to our own solar system. Two French anthropologists, Marcel Griolet and Germain de Tourlaine, who lived with and studied the Dogon for many years before and after the Second World War, had noted one very curious feature about the Dogon. The Dogon believed that Sirius was accompanied by another star of incredible heaviness, which was invisible. They called it Po Toyo, the Po star. Po is a tiny seed of typical cereal known as Phonio, aptly encapsulating the smallness of the star. In fact, it is now known that Sirius is, in fact, a binary or perhaps even trinary star system. And that the bright star we actually see from Earth has a companion invisible to the naked eye. Or indeed to any but the most powerful telescopes. And yet the Dogon knew about it. Now I tend to think when you look at Job chapter number 38, and I'm digressing now. I'm digressing from the book. When you look at Job chapter number 38, verse 30, 31, 32, 33, Psalms 19 the stars, the deep, the celestial. I think that the ancient people knew something very profound about the stars because I believe that the stars were part and parcel of the message of God. Now the writers go on to say the existence of Sirius B and the companion star is known, uh, and companion star is known, was, on, was only suspected by astronomers in the first decade of the 19th century when anomalies in Sirius's movement suggested the gravitational pull of a massive celestial body nearby. It was not conclusively observed until 1842 and not photographed until 1970. It is now known that Sirius B is a white dwarf star. The Dogon claim that Sirius is in fact a trinary system, that there is a third star, which they call the Star of Women. When Temple wrote the original version of the Sirius mystery, the existence of this Sirius C had in fact been proposed, but not conclusively proven by astronomers. Temple claims that since then, the existence of Sirius C has been proved and accepted by astronomers, and further evidence of the extraordinary knowledge of the Dogon. The Dogon believe that their ancestors were taught the arts of civilization by gods called Nomo, or rather demigods, half man, half gods because the Nomo were believed to have been emissaries of the one god, Ama, who descended to earth in an ark in the remote past. The Nomo were described as water spirits, who inhabited all bodies of water from the seas to the smallest ponds. Dogon, Dogon depictions of the Nomo show them to be fish-like. 
these half gods, half men, these people that descended from the sky, what do they look like? Fish-like. That may be why the Philistines worship Dagon, the fish god. Or Job speaks of Leviathan. Or David Icke speaks of the reptilian race. Or the one missing animal group around the throne of God. Or amphibian. Reptilian. Fish. From Egypt to West Africa to the Hopi Indians, there is something profoundly connected about our past. The Stargate Conspiracy, a book that's very, very interesting and gives us some tremendous insight, certainly one we don't agree with at all, in all, but it points us to a time where we may see Isaiah 19 fulfilled. There may be something more going on. And one of the great things about being a Bible believer, about studying these things, is that we're not near as in the dark as we think. What were these people? I think we have a glimpse of them through the Bible. And I think the more that we study, the more that we learn, the more that we grow, the more we'll come to see that all of these things have been pointing us for a long time to that great momentous occasion, and that is the return of the Lord. We'll come back to this theme again. We'll pick up again, maybe here in the near future, and re, re, um, revisit some of the information and updates about the pyramid. Do your work. There's some great books out there on the pyramid, some great truths out there. Study your Bible, study your books, study something other than Facebook and the TV, and God be with you till we talk again. <music>